Josh, worship team, thank you. So good. Yeah, you're allowed to like spontaneously clap for that. That's great. Well, welcome back to our, our series um, in the Old Testament books of First and, and Second Samuel. We have spent um, all of our time so far in, in First Samuel, and, and this morning we make the transition to, to Second Samuel. Um, in this, in this book, uh, we, we get to see kind of a biography of Israel's second king, David. In this book, um, David is going to consolidate the, the tribes of Israel under his rule. He's going to establish Jerusalem as the capital and focal point of the nation. He'll receive the covenant promise of a perpetual throne. You might want to write this down and think about it in a few minutes. It's called the Davidic covenant. We'll talk more about that. He'll defeat the enemies of the nation, but it's also in this book we see a downward spiral. He'll come back up at the end, but we see him commit sin with Bathsheba and in turn struggle with, with family and eventually with national problems. I don't know if you know this, but there's more spoken about David in the entire Bible than any one single person except for Jesus. There are tens of thousands of books written about this guy. So we're going to spend most of the rest of our time in this series talking about David's life. But before we get there, we need to do a little review. So do me a favor. If you brought your, your Bible this morning, please open it to 2 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 5, or your Bible app. If for some reason you don't have a Bible, I don't recommend it right this second, but after the service, there are Bibles in the back on our communion tables. You can, you can grab one. If we're all out, come talk to myself or anyone else you think might know how to get your Bible, and we'll get God's word into your, into your hands. Um, even if you haven't been with us over the last three months, most of you are familiar with David's story. You may have heard about it in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Maybe your mom and dad back in the day. Maybe not. Um, but maybe they, they read to you from the children's Bible, your children's Bible, about David. I mean, you could have been like me and grown up in a home where that didn't happen. And if that's the case, good to have you here. Let's start with some facts about David that will lead us up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, first of all, David was a shepherd just taking care, of his, taking care of his flock. This was the training part of his life. He was just out in the wilderness with God. He was killing a bear, killing a lion, and writing love songs to God. He was one of eight brothers. Samuel the prophet comes along and anoints him to be king. Samuel looked at the seven other brothers first who appeared to be more kingly than David. But God said, this is a really important verse. God said this in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. He said, the Lord does not look at the things that other people look at. People, like we do this all the time, don't we? Like we know better. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord, because he has the ability to do this, he looks at the heart. Now what this says to me is that we need to cultivate our hearts and, and not our looks. To which some of you are thinking, Lee, it's obvious you're doing a good job at cultivating your heart. Thanks. So Samuel anoints David to be Israel's future king. In the meantime, he fights. He fights the giant Goliath. He defeats Goliath and he befriends King Saul. But over time, King Saul becomes incredibly jealous of David and threatens his life. So much so that David has to flee from King Saul. Not once, but like five different times the king is trying to kill him. 
And David finds himself in the wilderness, wandering for years, far away from friends and family and the kingdom that was promised to him. And it's in the wilderness early on in in David's life that we see God do some of his best work. You see, it's in the wilderness that David is, is really at his best. As Jim said a few weeks ago, it's in the wilderness where David's life gets shaped and refined by, by God. Do me a favor, write this down. We need to re- remind ourselves that it's usually in the wilderness where God shapes and refines us. Like, we, we all want the mountaintop experience perpetually, right? We just want to get to a place where we go, oh, it's all good forever. Yeah, write this down. That's called heaven. Right? And let me encourage you in a, in a weird sort of way. Um, the mountaintop is amazing, but it's, it's in the valley where like fruit is grown, where God cultivates the harvest. If we receive it, right, God will do, he'll do great things. And I get it, we all, we all want the mountaintop. Last weekend, Ruth and I, for the first time in our lives, which is amazing, we hadn't been there before, but uh, we went to Colorado Springs, Manitou Springs, right at the base of Pikes Peak. Has anyone ever been to Colorado? Is it me or does God live there? What's up with that city? That's ridiculous. Like, that should not be allowed. You should not be able to go there and have to leave there, right? And I love Fayetteville, but I mean, that's like 70 in the day, 40 at night, you know, no humidity, just amazing. And so we're up against the base of this mountain, kind of high desert, and then we, we start driving up to Pikes Peak, and you're kind of midway up, and it's 50 or 60 degrees, like, oh, God. Then we get to the top, and you see out over everything, and it begins to snow. And we're like, I want to stay here forever. But life didn't work that way. Hey, this is really important. Often, the wilderness is God's waiting room that he uses for you and me to make us, if we let him, into the persons he wants us to be. Back to David. King Saul dies in in battle, as you learned last week. So David comes out of the wilderness and now finally, like after decades, takes his place on the throne. He's now king over all of Israel. And we see him start out strong. Chapters 1, one through 5, you'll notice um, that we, we see this incredible success at him taking back Jerusalem, the chief city of Israel. And, and many scholars call this the triumphal, the triumphal part of David's life. David wins back the city from some of their enemies. I love these two verses. I just I want to share them because I think they're so cool. Verse 6, 2 Samuel chapter 5, the king, David, and his men, they marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. You're like, man, where are the Philistines? Different group this time who lived there. The Jebusites, I love this. This is some, some Old Testament smack talk, right? They said to David, you will not get in here. Even the, the blind and the lame can ward you off. Like, you will not get in here. I love the writer. Nevertheless, <laughs> David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city, the city of David. And, and as a part of his victorious campaign, he decides that he wants to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to God's city, Jerusalem. The Ark was Israel's most sacred possession. This is the closest thing that Israel had um, to, kind of, uh, to a throne for God. 
It was a very sacred reminder to them who God was. And, and David knew that it needed to be back in the city of God, the city of Zion. And so if we move ahead to chapter 6, we see in the, the first two verses that David gets a, a group together. Actually, 30,000 young warriors, just in case. And they go down and they, res, they retrieve the ark from the house of Abinadab, where it had been for the last 30 years during Saul's reign. And they, they bring the ark back to Jerusalem, and I wish I could paint the picture better than I'm going to, but it's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men and women and children, and they're marching, literally, you know the song, Marching to Zion. They're marching to Zion with the very presence of God behind them, now on the shoulders of the Levitical priests, marching behind King David. It's a beautiful picture. It's incredible. Now remember, God's people could could really celebrate and a celebration breaks out they did this often for all sorts of all sorts of things but this celebration is really big why because for the first time they're bringing the very presence of God back into the city and people will come from all over Israel to be able to see and feel the very presence of God and the celebration was was intense Verse 14, wearing a a linen ephod, David, King David that is, was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of, of trumpets. This was one incredible party. Now just a quick thought here. I know it's obvious, but it needs to be said. King David knew how to worship God. I mean, he really knew how to worship God. Verse 14 says that he, he danced before God with all of his might. Think about that phrase. With, with all of his mighty dance before the Lord. This is a no-holds-barred worship of the living God. He was all out there for God. And, and it says, this is interesting, that he was wearing a linen ephod. You're like, why is this important? Why mention this? What's a linen ephod? Well, it's, it's sort of a, a sleeveless undergarment that, that was worn. Someone said to me in between services, you should have wore one. No, I didn't want to do that. It kind of, you know, one of these here, and it kind of goes down to about right here. It's modest, relatively speaking. But write it down. It's underwear. (laughs) You know, they were tough wearing linen underwear back in the day. I mean, that was tough, right? Can a brother get some cotton? But they were wearing linen underwear. Now, I want us to think about this. In his underwear, the king of all of Israel is dancing with all of his might. With all of his might, David is worshiping the Lord with complete abandon, complete disregard for what anyone else might might think, including his wife, Michael, who is the daughter of the now dead King Saul. And he's marching in this processional. He's not just marching. He's dancing in his underwear. He's spinning and clapping and singing with tens if not hundreds of thousands of people behind him. All these Jewish people. You can just imagine the trumpets are playing and all sorts of instruments and all sorts of songs and Michael is at the window and she has a moment. Like we all have these moments, don't we? It's a seminal moment for her. She has a decision to make. We've been there, right? You've seen someone just go crazy for God. It might be in worship. It might be singing. It might, it might just be their lifestyle. And you're, you kind of have that, this is different. This is out there. I'm not sure what to do with this. And we have a moment. What does she do with her moment? Verse 16 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And and when she saw King David, God's anointed? Her husband? Oh, dancing before the Lord. Here's her moment. She despised. I mean, she goes deep. You've been there, right? To the very core of who she is, she despised him. Now I get it. Nobody likes to see their husband dancing around the streets in their underwear. I understand, right? Especially when your husband is the king. This is not very kingly. This is going to make the Jerusalem Gazette. It's going to be all over the internet. So she's very upset. She doesn't like it at all. But guess what? And boy, this is so important for us. We've got to get to this place as followers of Jesus. He doesn't care. Why? You ready? Because he's worshiping the living, not, not, not a dead God, not an idol, not a structure, not a venerated saint. He's worshiping the living God. So his attention is fixed and focused and lost in the glory of the living God. So here's my question for us. What does our worship tell others about the value of God to us? Some of you say, well, Lee, hold on. What is worship? Dancing like this? Music? Fair question. Let me attempt to give an answer to that. Worship is our response to the gospel. the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's make it personal in in my life. Worship is not just what we do in here when we sing. Worship is how we live, how we spend our money, what we do with our time, the values we teach our children, how we treat the poor, and how we respond to the things that God hates. Hey, God hates sin and injustice. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't think, ah, it's all right. He doesn't go, nah, no big deal. A worship moment takes place in traffic when I'm like, I want to get mad. I want to show everybody that I matter, right? Worship takes place in front of my computer and there's an opportunity to go places I should not go. Worship takes place outside in my front yard next to my neighbor who will never cut his grass and he walks outside and I am indignant. Worship takes place in the office. Worship takes place when you've been married to that same person for 30 years and you have a a moment where you want to despise them and you say, I will not. So worship is not just what we do in here when we sing, but it certainly includes what we do in here. When we come together as a community and we sing God's praises and listen to God's word, we are putting on display God's greatness and glory in our lives. So what should that look like? 
Now, I know about this time some of you are getting nervous. You're thinking, is the application of this sermon going to be us stripping down to our underwear and, and dancing before God? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> no, no, no. But our worship makes a statement to others about the worth of God to us. Our worship puts our hunger, on, our hunger for God on display for the world to see. Our worship should physically demonstrate our, our admiration of God's greatness and our gratitude for his grace. David in the Psalms says constantly that when he worships, he is aware constantly, you ready for this, that the surrounding nations are his audience. You, you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. I try to read five Psalms a day and a proverb, right? Proverb a day keeps the stupid away. Five Psalms a day uh, puts God on display. I just made that up. That's pretty cool right there, right in that moment. I'm just freestyling now, like right there. But as, so I've done this now for decades, and if you do it for decades, it's impossible. If you do it for a month, it's impossible to walk away from the Psalms and go, eh, God doesn't really care about worship. It's the exact opposite. You are floored with this global, this global worship that David lays out. Oh God, may the nations see me worship you, and when they do, may they be drawn to your glorious light. What if? The reason our community out there doesn't take God more seriously is the result of the way we worship in here. Some of you say, well, um, okay, hold on there, hyperactive Jewish guy. Take it, take it easy. I'm just not a demonstrative person. It's not my personality. I understand. You should not not be yourself in worship. And I will buy that as long as it is true that if I walked up to you and I handed you an envelope with $10 million in it and you knew it was legit, tax-free, tax-free, something tells me you'd take it if it wasn't tax-free, right? And I walk up to you and I hand you a massive envelope with $10 million in it and you know it's legit. And if, if for some reason you're the kind of person that goes, thank you very much. Praise God. It's appropriate for you to respond that way in worship if that's what you do when I hand you $10 million. But if not, then maybe we don't put as much value on our salvation as we do in $10 million. And I'm just as guilty. I'm watching not the fourth, but the third NBA Finals game with my oldest son, Levi, the Golden State Warriors. We're rooting for them. Um, and uh, they're losing the whole game. And as they start to come back, like literally the women in the house begin to run to the rooms because we're so emotional. We're knucking, we're high-fiving, we're chest bumping. We're, at one point, no lie, when Kevin Durant hit the three-pointer to go, go ahead, I literally jumped up and went, ah, I, I did that. My daughter-in-law went, what, what just happened? <laughs> it's a basketball game. Jesus once had a woman come to him while he was eating. And she began to weep. 
this is amazing. He's in this group setting and men and women did not hang out together. He's a rabbi and he's with religious leaders, the pastors of their day. And his disciples who are watching all this. He's eating a meal and they're talking, I'm sure, about spiritual things. And this woman barges into the conversation, into the, the communal eating. And she begins to weep. And she grabs Jesus' feet and the tears from, from her face begin to fall on her, his feet. And she begins to wipe and clean his feet with her hair and her tears. Are you kidding me? And the religious leaders are, what's going on? And they rebuke Jesus. But she was so grateful for the forgiveness and love and grace and mercy of Jesus that she just couldn't help herself. Please hear this. That's what worship should be. We just can't help ourselves. At the end of this scene, Jesus said these words. Those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven much forgive much. Those who are forgiven much they worship much. Sometimes, right? Sometimes we just need to go back to the examples that are given in Scripture and go, God, let me be like that. Maybe we don't love much because we've never really experienced the reality of God's forgiveness. Or if we have, our hearts have grown cold and indifferent to it. You say, well, well Lee, hold on. I think that somber reflection and a sense of awe is what is important in worship. I agree. Do you, do you just want to do what you think? You just want it to be personality driven? Or do you want it to be biblically driven? Because that's not biblical. That's part of what the Bible says. But it's not all of what the Bible says. Like that's really self-focused, right? Just like it would be self-focused if I said, worship is all about dancing in my underwear. If you don't do that, you're not worshiping. Not true. The Bible presents a range of emotions that are appropriate in worship. Sometimes the Bible says we need to be on our face in the presence of God. Sometimes we need to stand in the presence of God in stunned silence. Sometimes we need to sit in awe. Sometimes we need to bow our heads and weep over our sin. And sometimes we need to, ready for this, clap our hands, all you people, and shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Where's that found? In the Bible. Let me just put this bluntly. Some of us need to repent of the dignity we carry ourselves with in church. <laughs> I did that first service and I don't know why. I don't know why I did that again second service. I just <laughs> You get the picture, I think, right? How dare you wash his feet with your tears in your hair? How dare you dance before the Lord? How dare you lay on the ground and weep? How dare you be biblical? Hey, we gotta be honest about worship, right? 
Let's just be honest. Whether it's outside these walls or inside these walls, what tends to affect worship in our lives is this, is this sense of entitlement. It's this sinfulness in our life. It's this the feelings of shame because we live in a shame culture. And that's what Michael was trying to do to David. I'm going to shame you. Shut up. <laughs> no. You can't make me. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, I'm going to become even more undignified than this. Okay, we can stop there. This is a little uncomfortable anyways. Let's move on to chapter 7. And as we do, I want to make just three observations. First observation that we see from the text is we see David's desire. And it appears to be a good thing. I'm not judging his desire. Verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. By the way, I wish we could have done this, but if we were to trace the narrative from 2 Samuel 1 through 2 Samuel 6, all you see is God did, God did, God did, God did. God gave the enemies, God gave the city, God, God, God. God gives rest from all of his enemies around him. He says to to Nathan the prophet, here I am, I'm living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in in a tent. Now David has thoroughly established his, his, he establishes the king, God has given him a stable kingdom, he's defeated all of his enemies, the land is prospering and at rest and and, and Nathan is the nation's pastor and I can just imagine they're sitting together on the back of David's kingly palace porch, they've just had dinner and uh, David looks out uh, from the porch and he sees the, the tabernacle. It's just a tent. There's no temple. And it's 400 years old, probably a little or a lot threadbare. And he says to Nathan, he says, you know, this isn't right. Nathan's like, well, what do you mean? Do you smell that? Well, smell what? He's like, you smell the cedar. Oh, yeah, cedar smells great. It's really expensive, too. Yeah, that's my house. (laughs) That's my house. I live in a nice... House panel with cedar, cedar smells good, cedar's expensive. So David says, I live in a really nice house and God lives in a tent and that just doesn't seem right. And here we get to peek into the character of King David. He's a godly man. Usually when kings have peace and resources and too much free time, they do very bad things. At the very least, they do meaningless things. Is that ever a good combination? Tons of resources, tons of peace, tons of free time. Huh. Not David. He could have spent his time planning vacations or building monuments to himself, but instead he plans on building a house for God. He could have occupied his thoughts with self-indulgence, but instead his heart is on the things of God. He could have surrounded himself with yes-men and flunkies and a kingly entourage, but he doesn't do that. He's hanging out with Pastor Nathan. So it got me to thinking, what kind of person are we during times of rest and plenty? In other words, are we caught up in the culture and living an indulgent lifestyle? Or do we ask the Lord how we might serve him? And how we can best use um, our, his resources and our, his free time to bring him glory. I mean, like, in America, there's literally hundreds, if not thousands of books in evangelical Christian circles calling Christians back in the second part of their life to serve him. 
Like literally, millions of Christians like, woohoo, came to know Jesus at 8, at 12, at 17, at 22. Woohoo, Jesus, you're awesome. I will serve you. 40, 45, 50. Oh, I'm kind of tired. And I got a lot of stuff. This is, wow. I think I'll just live a self-consumptive life. I think David's desire in this case is a good thing and his character really stands out. So Nathan responds like any pastor responds when someone who is really wealthy comes to him and says, I want to use my considerable resources to do something for the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it. David's like, hey, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan's like, wait, I'm the pastor. That sounds kind of cool. I could use a temple too. Here's how he responds, verse 3. Uh, hey, your kingliness, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is, is with you. Sounds good, right? I mean, Jim and I fantasize about this all the time. Um, we, f- we have 40 acres of land that's being used by cobblestone to grow product for the poor. Hallelujah, praise God. But we would love to build a building, a facility on, on that land um, but we just need like $20 million. Um, and if someone came to us and said, whew, hey, um, here's $20 million, go build on the land, I think we'd be like, yes. I mean, I, I know some, let me just help you out here. You're thinking, why is this one down low and this one's up high? Well, the motor over here broke this morning. So we tried to lower this one. That's still too low. So you're getting blasted. You're getting blasted. And we just chalk it up to, welcome to New Heights. It's just New Heights. Some of you right now, I promise you, you've readjusted 14 times in your chair. Oh, man, I love Jesus. Oh, some of you in the bleachers, I don't know why you sit there. The, the Lord loves you. But <laughs> earlier in worship, did you hear the fire alarm going off? That's a beautiful thing right in the middle of worship, Right? So if someone came to us and here's $20 million, I don't think we'd pray about it, right? I say, yes, let's do it. But that's not the right response. Maybe Nathan's new at this, I, I don't know, but he does make a mistake, and we've all made this mistake. He makes an important decision without first talking to God about it. Do you ever do that? Do you ever make an important decision on your own and then ask God to bless it? For me, that just doesn't usually turn out really well. David's desire was noble. Build a house for God. His heart was right in motivation. And I know many people wouldn't have prayed about it either. But let me just say this. No matter how righteous a cause seems, no matter how motivated a ministry it appears to be, we must first seek the heart of God in prayer as to whether or not we should move forward. Amen? God, do you want me to do this? Remember, that was the problem with the the the. the the, the wealthy, right, merchants in James chapter 3, they're like, we're going to go to this city and this city, and we're going to buy it, we'll do whatever we want. And James is like, no, 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 you need to ask if the Lord wills it or not. So, Nathan says to David, um, building a temple for God is a no-brainer, get her done, but God has other plans. Secondly, this morning, let's look at God's desire. God has a different plan for David, verse 4, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. You say, was it a vision? Was it a dream? I don't know. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, 
whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? David, God's like, I'm a big boy. When I want a house, well, I'll get a house. Don't worry about me. And so the Lord spoke to Nathan that night regarding um, David's plans and said it wasn't for David to do. And let's be careful not to read into the Lord's words any anger. God wasn't angry with David. His heart was right. Some scholars have said, well, David just wanted to do what all the kings did back in the day. Build kind of a museum and, and put this God in there and show it off. That wasn't what God, David wanted to do. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon says later, verse 17, my father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, and this is important, you did well. You did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Although God never requested a house for, from the people of Israel, it, it blessed him that David desired to do this. But it wasn't God's plan. So he tells Nathan to tell David that his offspring would build his house let's skip down to verse 12 2nd Samuel 7 Nathan says through God when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors David you're going to die I will raise up your offspring Solomon initially to succeed you your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever this is called the Davidic covenant you say wait a second he's going to establish the throne the kingdom of Solomon for Solomon and David die Solomon what God is saying here is we'll get to build a house he'll eventually get to build a temple but more importantly God will get to of David's lineage bring the Messiah about Jesus this is the Davidic covenant let me let me just nerd out for a second the Davidic covenant means that God is making a sol solemn binding covenant with David and with his house and what he's saying to David is this you get to build your son a temple for me but I'm going to build from you and your lineage, your heritage, a dynasty. It's, it's of the same magnitude as the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, or the Abrahamic covenant, or the covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai, or, or the covenant we read of in Jeremiah 31 and 33. I mean, God is just amazing. David is like, God, I want to build you this really cool house that will show you off. And God is like, David, I want to build from you this really cool dynasty that will eventually sh show off my son, Jesus. Quick, let's connect the New Testament dots. What does this look like? Remember the words of the angel to Mary? Luke chapter 1, verse 31. She's afraid. As you can imagine, an angel showed up. And he says, don't be afraid. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. Here it is. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's what God wanted to build. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever and ever. And his kingdom will never end. It wasn't about a Davidic kingdom or a Sol Solomon's kingdom. It was about the kingdom of Jesus. And David could have been disappointed, right? I mean, he really wants to do this. He's, he's motivated. He has vision and resources, and he's the king, and he didn't really fully understand this whole Messiah thing. So what does he do? Thirdly, from our text, we see David's response. 
It's powerful. He gives God all the credit. And, and this isn't easy to do, is it? In every generation, not, not just ours, people struggle with, with control and narcissism. They struggle with wanting to do whatever they want to do, and they want all the credit for, for doing it. And I was thinking about this. How about us? When life is hard or, or dis, disappointing, or better yet, we've accomplished much and, and have abundant resources at our disposal, we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I taking the credit? The first thing I want us to do is look at verse 18 because it's, it's beautifully simplistic. David is at, at a crossroads. What, what does he do? He's like, God, I really want to do this. And God is like, no. So what does he do? Verse 18, this is beautiful. The Bible says that King David went and he sat before the Lord. You ever do that? It's, it's one of the reasons I, I just love my awkward little prayer of chair that I have in my study it sits real low and it just kind of it's comfortable but it's weird and I just go in there and, and I open my bible and I, I begin to kind of pour out my heart to God and I just feel like a little kid I just sit before God for others it may be in a deer stand or at a picnic table or on your couch or you know whatever on your knees that's fine He's just been told no by God, and what does he do? He goes and sits in the presence of God like a child. He sits there in the presence of daddy. He begins to think. He begins to meditate. He begins to pray. He begins to pour out his heart to God, and this is what we get, verse 18. This is his prayer. Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? He's not, he's not some guy going, I'm the king. I want to do this. Give me my way. He says, and as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. You're making my house a dynasty. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Who does David give the credit? God. And he he says some amazing things. He doesn't pout. He takes the posture of a child. This is the David that we love. This is the David who will write all the Psalms. This is the Holy Spirit in David. This is godly David. This is, this is why we understand that Jesus would come from the line of David. Do you see what's going on here? God has just said no to him, and he's pouring out his heart in gratitude. He worships. And, and you know what? There's always this, that's always a solution when we find ourselves in difficulty with God. When it's our will versus God's will, you know the scenario. There's what we want and there's what God wants. So what do we do to resolve that? I could give you 100 books right now and send you to conferences on how to have conflict resolution with people, with your wife, with your husband. But what, what do we do with conflict resolution when it comes to God? It should look like this. When God says no, we worship. We worship. We do what David did. We go and sit be before God and we think about how great he is, how amazing he is. We thank him. We count our blessings. We remember all the good things that he's done for us. It would have been wonderful for David to have been able to build this house for God. 
He had a genuine desire to give God glory, but it wasn't God's will. So how does David finish his prayer? Verse 27, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. So as we finish this morning, here's a question I have for you. God is building an eternal kingdom. It will last forever. Here's the question. Are you a part of that? Are you a part of that? God told David there's only one kingdom that will last, the one I build. Please, please hear this. Given enough time, your body will fail. Your business will fail. Even your family at your deathbed, they can't go with you. Jesus is the only thing that lasts forever. And here's an awesome invitation. Jesus offers to give you this eternal kingdom. He died to make you a part of it. Here's the catch. But you have to let him be king. Right? You have to receive it. If you're like, I'm going to earn it. I'm going to build the temple of myself. Nope. Or if you say, I don't need a king. Nope. You have to receive it. For we are are saved by grace. It's a gift from God. It's not a work that we do. So if you're here this morning and you're like, (laughs) I'm building my own kingdom. I'm I'm not in Jesus' kingdom, but I want to be. Today's the day. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up right now. As they're coming up, you'll see, hopefully you'll see people on my left and my right. Some of our staff is going to come on up. You'll see people in the back. They may or may not have stickers. And if you're thinking, I, man, I want to know what it means to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. What does salvation look like? Go talk to them. I'll be standing up front. Ruth and I will be up there. Come talk to us. And maybe you're, you're sitting here thinking, I've done that. And the next step for me is the, is the obedience of baptism. Well, you're going to see this on a regular basis. We have our baptismal set up. If you're like, I just need to be obedient. I need to get baptized today. We do not have a bathing suit. That would probably be awkward. But we have towels. So it's okay to get wet in order to get baptized. And if you want to get baptized, come up to myself or someone else you may know or someone on staff and just say, I want to get baptized. Now for others in this room, you know and love Jesus. Um, you're a part of his kingdom, but you're not living like it. Like you've, you've embraced a time of peace and security and abundance and your resources and your life and your thoughts are all about you. And Jesus is saying, come be a part of my kingdom. The kingdom of God has come to earth. Let's establish this thing. Let's be about the things that matter. If you're just like, I need someone to pray with me, come up. Have someone lay hands on you and pray pray that over you. Lord Jesus, yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. David wanted to build a house. God, you wanted to build a dynasty that would put a spotlight on King Jesus. Thank you. Thank you.
commit all this to you for your glory. Amen. Let's stand together as we